Uh, let me start with a true story that's going to relate to our passages and our, our focus for today. It was back in 2005 where a journalist by the name of Steve Lopez bumped into, came across a man called Nathaniel Ayers. And this is in the heart of Los Angeles. And uh, this story I'm going to tell you is depicted in the movie The Soloist, if you've seen that movie. And um, Nathaniel was uh, playing a two-string violin. He was homeless, disheveled, and clearly dealing with some pretty serious mental health and mental illness problems. But when he played that violin, it was like he was kind of bringing heaven to earth for a moment. He transcended the, the filthy circumstances he was in, living on Skid Row. And so uh, this journalist, uh, Stephen Lopez, was very curious, very intrigued by this street musical genius. How did this guy who can play like this, how did he end up in this position? So he began to investigate, began to dig in a little bit more to find out more about him. And he discovered that Nathaniel had once been um, a very promising student at the prestigious uh, Juliet School of Music. But things had taken a dark turn. And it was a tragic story of somebody who was on the right track, but uh, things had gone really in the wrong direction. He was once the pride of his family. Um, but one summer, he, when he was at school, he came home, and his family noticed some strange things about him. They noticed that his clothes were really tatty and, and dirty, and uh, they noticed that he was becoming more aggressive and more confused about things. And he was eventually diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and that's typically associated with you know, having hallucinations and delusional thinking and disorderly thinking. Um, he could no longer take care of his personal hygiene, manage his personal finances, even, even feeding himself, just preparing meals for himself became uh, almost impossible to do. His family tried shock therapy on him and forced medication on him, but he just ended up kind of looking like a zombie and acting like a zombie, and so it wasn't Working over the years, he drifted away from his family and ended up in California. And he was homeless. He had his, he had a, a shopping cart full of his possessions. He would gather sticks during the daytime to ward off the rats at nighttime. He was in a very vulnerable place on the streets. You know, vulnerable to crime, vulnerable to drugs, uh, vulnerable to the elements. There were. Uh, heat waves and, and rainstorms, and it was a very difficult circumstance. And so uh, Lopez decided to start writing a series of columns talking about Nathaniel's circumstances, talking about his amazing talent that he had, but also uh, the challenges of his mental illness and being on the streets. Well, this, these articles, these columns that he was writing uh, caused a, a groundswell of support from the community towards Nathaniel. People started donating instruments to him. I think six violins were donated, two cellos, and a piano. And immediately, Lopez realized he kind of created a problem. Yes, it was wonderful to get um, the response, but also it created a challenge um, because on Skid Row, yes, there are lots of needy people. Yes, there's lots of sick people. Yes, there's lots of vulnerable people, but there's also some predators as well. And he realized 
Nathaniel could be harmed or at worst killed for these very expensive um, musical instruments that he had been gifted. And so Lopez worked with a local community center to um, store these instruments at that the idea was that Nathaniel could go there and then use them in that place. But of course, as it turned out, uh, I think it was the second time uh, this was happening uh, when no one was looking, Nathaniel took, a, I think, a violin and a, and a cello and took off with them. So it wasn't working out too well. And on Skid Row, it's a place where the sirens never stop. It's one of the highest crime areas of all places. It's a dangerous place. And Lopez was very concerned about what would happen to Nathaniel. One night, he received a phone call. And as he's looking at his phone, he had this sinking feeling that it was going to be the police or, or the hospital saying that something terrible had happened to Nathaniel. This was, what he, this was the moment he had been dreading, the thing that he'd really been trying to work against. Now, let me pause the story there. I'll get to the conclusion of the story at the end of the sermon. It does relate to our passages today and our scripture, uh, our focus for today. We're in our series right now called Being the Church, and each week we've been going through different uh, subject matters, and today we're looking at the issue of compassion. How do we build a compassionate church? And specifically, we're looking at wise compassion. So let's, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on us, and that you would cause us to be those who have a huge compassionate heart for those in need and for each other, but Lord, that you would cause us to be those very discerning and wise about how to express that compassion. So Lord, do an amazing work in us, and I pray for anyone here today that doesn't know you, I pray that they come to saving knowledge of you today, they come into a relationship with you today. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now, early on in the Bible, we're told something amazing about God. Sometimes people think that the God of the Old Testament is just a mean, grumpy old guy who loves to punish people, but in Exodus chapter 22, God says this about himself. He says, I am compassionate. That's God's own self-description. I am compassionate. So if it comes from God, if God embodies compassion, uh, then we need to, uh, we can't let ourselves off the hook for this. Um, for, those, for the idea of shepherding, that's a big uh, theme that we've been looking at in this series, the idea of being shepherds, being sheep shepherds, shepherding one another, the church is this shepherding family. Um, there's a parallel drawn, an image drawn between those who are appointed shepherds that, hey, they've got to take care of um, their own immediate family first in order to be, to be able to shepherd the church of God. So you see this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I believe it is. Verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care? That's the same word there for compassion. How will he have compassion for God's church? And of course, we see this in the life and ministry of Jesus as well. Jesus is the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. There's nobody with a shepherding heart greater than Jesus. And he, again, draws this parallel between compassion and and shepherding, just as a shepherd looks on the sheep, on the flock. So as believers, we look on God's church with compassion. We see this uh, in Colossians, sorry, Mark chapter 6. It says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And then, of course, also in Colossians 3, then all Christians are told, put on them, 
as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now this verse, keep this verse up for a second. This verse, it assumes, it says, put on them. Put on compassionate hearts. It's assuming you don't have it on just yet. Maybe you don't have enough on. Maybe you have some on, maybe you have a bit on. Maybe you're somebody really gifted in compassion. You have it on all the time. But, you know, for a lot of us, we got to put it on. The great thing about this verse is the Bible doesn't condemn us for lacking compassion. The simple instruction is put it on, almost like you're changing outfits. So if you ever had that before where you wear a certain outfit and you're like, I don't feel so good in this. You know, I just don't feel like it's me. I just feel frumpy or I feel weird. It's maybe I'm bigger than I was. Maybe I'm skinnier than I was. It doesn't fit very well. It's old-fashioned, old-style. And then you change into something else and you're like, I feel like a different person. Hey, if you lack compassion, put it on like a new set of clothes. Uh, the, the, the cool thing about this, so the Bible doesn't point the finger saying, you rotten, terrible bunch for not caring enough about other people. It says, put it on. Choose it. So this tells us something about compassion. Compassion can be an action that leads to an emotion, or it can be an emotion that leads to an action. Either way around, whether you feel it first and act it out later, or you act it out first and feel it later, it's compassion. It's compassion. That's how the Bible describes it to us. Psalm 103 puts it like this. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children... Obviously, we can assume that's a good father. A good father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So you think about a good earthly father. Not all earthly fathers are good, of course. But you think about the best of us and, or the best of humanity. And uh, a good or parent, any, any you know, mother or father looking at a child, is going to see this kid needs a lot of help. In fact, all children are at the mercy of benevolent adults, right? Without kind, caring adults, children are in a lot of trouble. Like children need constant help from adults. And so a, a compassionate father in this example here, in this psalm, is looking at their, their, their children saying, you know, and, and this is amazing because children can be irritating, can test our patience, right, can break stuff, and, you know, mess with plans, right? A lot of people don't like children, which I think is sad. I think you got, you, children are amazing. But, but, but a, a good father has compassion. They see the frailty and the need of the child. And it's the same with God. Actually, it's even more so with God. God, as our father, he is so intimately aware of our humble beginnings, of our frailty, of our weakness, of, of the struggles we have, the things we face. And because he is looking at that and he's aware of that, he has that heart of compassion for us. He has that, that, that patience with us, that kindness towards us. It's, it's a glorious, wonderful idea. And one of the things you learn about compassion is that it's, it is hard to, you, you can't feel compassion for somebody or even have the opportunity to show compassion or choose compassion if you're not really aware of somebody's plight. Right? You, don't, you don't really see it. So, so if, you, if, if we haven't faced the circumstances that others have faced, it can be hard for us sometimes to be like, why, why is that so hard for them? Or why, why are they struggling with that? And, and the great example of this, well, and sort of think about it like this way as well, that the more trouble you face in your own life, probably, depending on how you respond to it, of course, probably the more compassion you can have for the more types of people because you're intimately aware of, of, of your own struggles. But uh, uh, think about it like this. Um, it, it can sometimes be hard to have compassion for uh, the wealthy or uh, people of great means or uh, popular people, you know, celebrity type 
people, people with a lot of power and wealth, that uh, if they go through something tragic, sometimes it can, be, it can be easy to be callous towards them, being like, well, you know, they're always, you know, they, they've got plenty of stuff, forgetting that actually they're a human being just like anyone else. And, and there's just lots of things that money and, and status cannot solve. They're going to be suffering and struggling just like uh, anybody else. Now, compassion's a tricky thing, right? Because we want to have compassion, but also compassion can be used against us. Compassion can, get, can be weaponized sometimes, right? There's a, there can be a strong association of guilt related to compassion. I, I, tend to, I tend to see this in my observation. This is anecdotal, of course, but I tend to see this coming from either in the religious sector, you know, from, from very pious, and I mean pious in the most negative sense of meaning pious, uh, people who want to leverage compassion to get their own point of view across, or you sometimes see it in politics, in politicians, you sometimes see it in criminals as well, and politicians and criminals sometimes do exactly the same thing, uh, and you laugh because it's true. Um, and, uh, but yeah, even, even people who break the law, who want to break the law, or have got their own agenda uh, behind something, they'll, they'll uh, leverage the poor against you, manipulate or cause guilt, or, or maybe even people without bad motives, maybe sometimes people are just idealistic, very idealistic about life, that kind of youthful idealism about the way we view the world. We'll, 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 it's very easy for us to use the natural desire to show compassion, to weaponize it against other people. And we're warned of this in scriptures. There's this, in, uh, this instance with Jesus in uh, John chapter 12, verses 3 through, through 5. It says, uh, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nod, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of, the, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why has this ointment not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then I think, is there a next verse to that? Second part? Is that the, is that the full thing? Oh, there we go. And verse 6. And he said this, uh, and he said this, sorry, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help, uh, he, money bag, he used to help himself to what was uh, put into it. So uh, this, is, this is an example from the pages of Scripture of how compassion can be leveraged by somebody to, to judge, to have prejudice about somebody else's actions and um, Jesus' response to this is amazing. In the following verses, Jesus says, leave her alone. So that tells you everything you need to know. Jesus comes to her defense, leave her alone. And uh, Judas, though, e even if his... So, so he's judging Mary's motives, which is wrong. You're not supposed to judge people's... You don't know people's motives. You're not supposed to do that unless they confess to it. You can speculate sometimes, but you, he's publicly judging her motives. This was, this was a, a pure, honest act of worship on, on her, on, on, you know, from her uh, to Jesus. And even if Judas, though, had had a pure motive in it, even if he really cared, let's say he wasn't a thief, genuinely cared about the poor, even his words were wrong. Even his approach was wrong. Mary uh, was actually probably a very generous person. There was a group of women we're told, I think in Luke 7, something like that, that, that there was a group of women that would travel around with Jesus and funded his ministry uh, at different times. And there's a chance, there's a good chance, we don't know for certain, that maybe she was a part of that, that group of women. That, so she's very generous uh, funding Jesus' uh, ministry, but also 
she was, I'm sure, helping the poor and, and giving to the poor and needy in all kinds of different ways. But she knew that actually her greatest gifts and her greatest worship is towards God, not towards people. Yeah, I'm going to be generous towards people. Of course, I'm going to help somebody in need. But, but my, my greatest extravagance is towards, towards God because ultimately God is the one that takes care of people. God is the one uh, who, who helps the poor and the needy. And then Jesus goes on in John chapter 12 and a few verses on. He says in verse 8, he says, Jesus says, the poor you will always have. The poor you will always have. And so we need to be suspicious of this because anytime the poor are inv- invoked either by us or by somebody else, we, we kind of have to question it because poverty is not an issue of money. It's not, it's not an issue of money. Um, we want to have compassionate hearts, of course, but we have, to, we have to understand that in any society throughout all history, throughout all human history, and continuing on until Jesus comes back, there's always going to be a certain percentage, a certain section of every society, of every country, there's going to be a small percentage of people who either cannot care for themselves or will not care for themselves. And distinguishing the two is sometimes hard or sometimes impossible to know exactly. Nor, not only some people are incapable of or, or unwilling to take care of themselves, but they're, they're either incapable or unwilling to take care of their own dependents, the people they should be responsible for as well. And that, that problem, you can diminish it a bit. Societies can improve in terms of getting people the help they need, in terms of, you know, there are certain things that can, can, can happen towards that, and we should work towards and have compassion towards that. But there's always going to be a percentage of every single society of people who need help. They cannot take care of themselves. And so to its naivety from someone like Judas or anyone, really, to think that just liquidating assets into cash and giving them to the poor is going to solve the issue of poverty. I've, even, I've had this uh, before even in ministry where it's like, hey, we're going to, you know, we, we, we give to the poor, we do all kinds of different things, different ministry opportunities, and we're always looking for those opportunities and try and be generous. But I've had it before where it's like, hey, we, there's some other practical things we've got to take care of. We've got to get this thing for the building. We've got to get this thing for this team. We've got to, there's certain things you know, for the kids' ministry. There's certain things you want to spend money on. And literally I've had people say, we shouldn't spend that money. It should go to the poor. And my first question is, well, what are you doing for the poor? Because it's, it's, very, it's very curious to me that people always want to use somebody else's money to help the poor. That's what Judas is doing here. He's want to use somebody else's money. We're just going to use Mary's money. But, you know, Mary's actually a very generous person, very caring person, most likely. This is the, and this is the, 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 the kind of naivety of our, our times is we think if we just get enough cash and just throw enough money at a problem, it'll solve it. It'll solve homelessness. It'll solve poverty. It'll solve, no, it won't. It won't solve their, you know, Somebody who is, is in, incapable of, of dealing with finances or unwilling or irresponsible, money's a curse. And this is, this is you know, depicted well in uh, people who, who play the lottery, right? People who, who gamble, lottery. People who spend a lot of money on lottery tickets. You know, the kind of person who is betting on having a better future by gambling in that way is also the kind of person that does typically, not always, but there's a strong correlation between having that impulse, which is an addiction for a lot of people, having that impulse, and then if you get a boatload of money, you don't know how to manage it properly. And so within, it's like two to four year time frame, if you win the lottery, typically most people who win the lottery within two to four years are in more debt 
than they were before they won the lottery. Money is not the solution. There, now, to be fair, there is a small percentage of people, if you give them financial aid, they're going to they're gonna nail it. They're going to do a great job with it. They're going to say, thank you so much for the help. They're going to be careful with it. They're going to budget it. They're going to spend it wisely, and they're going to be able to generate some of their own wealth and their own income and then be, be a blessing and help to others. Of course that's going to happen. Of course they're going to people, be people like that. But typically people who are dysfunctional, who are in this kind of situation in the first place, just throwing money at it, and obviously we have to understand, right, we put more money in politicians' hands, what's going to happen to it? All their friends start getting all the sweetheart deals. Their pockets get lined all the more. It's a terrible situation we live in, especially in Chicago. It's in our faces, right? The corruption is terrible. Illinois. Ah, help us, Jesus. We need, we need revival. We need a revival. We need God to break out. And because, because of this, because of how money has been thrown at trying to, you know, the compassion or the, even compassion being leveraged and used as guilt against us, good-hearted people wanting to give, people do rally around these, and they do give, and they do pour out, and that's important. You never want to stop doing that. We can never stop doing that, but because compassion has been poured out, bleeding hearts have poured out resources in wasteful ways, in unwise ways, people ask these questions. People will conclude compassion is weakness, or if we support this cause, isn't that, isn't that enabling bad behavior? Isn't that just perpetuating? Don't, don't, don't people just need a lot of tough love? People will, will, will conclude that. And, and I, I sympathize with those. I don't blame people for concluding that. Because if compassion is used in an unwise way, then you're going to get worse outcomes. Some helping actually hurts people. And that there, discerning it is really, is, there are gray areas where it's hard to discern. And I'd always would rather err on the side of grace and generosity and get it wrong sometimes. But there's got to be times where it's like, you know, you just, people have, sometimes people need to feel hungry. Sometimes people need to go without. Sometimes people need, they need to be motivated with some of those things. There's a, lot, there's a fine line there. I get it. But that's, you know, even, even parent, parents know this with their kids. You know, if you, if, you, if you just solve all your kids' problems or let, you know, let them off the hook with all these different things, it doesn't serve, that does not serve them. That teaches them the wrong lesson. They need to feel the pain of the consequences. Then, then you can test, are they capable and able to learn the lesson from this? Otherwise, you never know. You never, ever know. So, so the Christian faith is this, is that we grow the biggest hearts of mercy that we can. We, we're always looking to say, God, grow my heart of mercy. Help me have this compassion towards people. But also, we're growing hands of discernment. Hearts of mercy but hands of discernment. Because when we meet needs in a compassionate way, what we're doing is we're, we're expressing the love of God to alleviate the suffering in the world. And, and there's nothing more gospel than you could do than, than that. Well, I guess actually sharing the gospel would be the bigger thing that be, is bigger than that. But, but, but that, that's it, doing it indeed. You understand what I'm saying? Also, though, we've got to see the danger of, of unfettered compassion or unwise compassion that at some point, there has to be a limit to this. That, that, I mean, you see this with people that, you know, compassion fatigue is a real thing, right? That you, you can burn out. You pour out and pour out and pour out. It's like a black hole. Some situations are just literally, they're black holes. You just, it doesn't matter how much resource you pour into it, it's not going to get any better. There's got to be a different way through this. And so there are dangers in unwise compassion, which is why people conclude that compassion is weakness or it's wrong or it's something we've got to avoid doing. And, and as Christians, we say, no, we're not going to give up. We're never going to give up being compassionate. 
but we're going to learn how to do it God's way. And God's way is rationed compassion. Not emotionally, we always want to be growing that, that heart of compassion, but our actions of compassion need to be rationed. So it means, hey, if I'm going to help somebody, it means I'm going to expect them to do something as well. I'm going, to, I'm going to meet them in the middle. Hey, I'll do this for you. You're in dire circumstances. You need help. I'll do this for you, but you also need to take a step, right? Or I can help you this time, but next time I won't help you. Next time it's on you. That's still seeing, that's like that compassionate father, still seeing the need, being connected to the need, but also that wisdom too, to say, it's going to be better for you if you can learn to handle this on your own. The first time actually compassion shows up in the Bible is with Joseph in ancient, uh, well, actually early on in Genesis, I think it is, Genesis 43, um, leads up to this point, but if you don't know the story of Joseph, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, then uh, by crazy twists and turns of events, ends up being Pharaoh's right-hand man in, uh, in Egypt. And then there's a famine in the land. Then Joseph's brothers have to travel to Egypt to get food because of the famine. And then his brothers end up standing in front of him before him. They don't know it's him because he's older now. He's dressed up like an Egyptian. But now he's in charge. They're in need. The situation is, uh, is reversed. And Genesis 43, it says, uh, Then Joseph hurried out. Um, so he'd seen his youngest brother, Benjamin. He hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Now this is... This is a wonderful example of spontaneous, of, yeah, really deep spontaneous compassion where that, that love he had for his youngest brother, the special bond that he shared with his youngest brother, Benjamin, hadn't gone away. It was buried deep down in there, but he just hadn't, hadn't experienced these feelings for a long time because he hadn't seen him. But now suddenly when he's before him and he looks on his youngest brother, he's overwhelmed to the point where he just cannot control it. This is, this is compassion, the feeling of compassion that leads to action. It's that way around in this circumstance. And th there's a lesson in this. There's a theme that emerges from the Bible in this. That it's, it's so natural to feel the strongest compassion the closer the proximity you have to the need itself. right? But, but not only that, but the, the, the closer the person is to you as well. So we tend to have the greatest compassion for our kin and our kind, right? So it's like, hey, it's, if you feel like you belong to a certain people group or you know, your own immediate family members, right? If, if you see a need in any of those communities, that's going to be the strongest emotion. It's just the way it works. It's human nature. We have to be aware of this as Christians. If it's a family member, it's my tribe or my people, it's like it's going to evoke the strongest Feelings of compassion. And you see this, the closer, so the closer you get to it, the stronger those feelings of compassion. This is a theme that, that pops up throughout Scripture. Of course, the first thing is you have to be aware of a situation to have any compassion about it. So you, we've heard of terrible things happening in the Middle East. This terrorist attack on Israel. And then just all the war and turmoil around all of that, the ongoing strife there. And your heart can go out. 
You can, you can repudiate a terrorist organization but still have compassion for the Palestinians as well as have enormous compassion for Jewish people who brutally lost loved ones and just horrific things happening. But that, that's a world away, right? You can be aware of it and you, 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 your heart's broken. You, but then you see something on social media and you see it with your eyes and you're like, oh my gosh. Or you, have, you meet somebody who actually has got family who knows somebody and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, the closer you get to it, those feelings, they grow and they grow and they grow. And then you, so you have to see, you have to, 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 to truly have compassion, you can't just be aware of it. You have to, you have to look, you have to see it. And this even happened with Jesus. I think it's, it's Luke 7, verse 13. This is at a funeral. So Jesus is at a funeral, but it says, and when the Lord saw her, this is the mother of the boy who had died, he had compassion on her. So, so you, you can see a funeral not necessarily feel much. See an ambulance down the street, not necessarily feel much. But when you see the person who's suffering, it, this is the same with Jesus. This is how Jesus experienced it. Then, all of a sudden, oh, this, this is a mother who's lost a child. Then there's compassion. Um, we see in, in actually the two most famous parables of Jesus. I think it's in, in Luke as well. We've got these up here. Luke 10, 33, this first one. It says that the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. He was it was a Jew who had been beaten up. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And then in Luke 15, this is the, the parable of the prodigal son. It says, and, and he, this is the father. He arose. And, uh, sorry, sorry, this is the prodigal son coming. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, I'm no uh, scholar on, on ancient languages or the Greek language and how these are uh, exactly, all the exact meaning of this, but I, I did notice something here, the difference between, let's go back to that, that verse we had here. The first example, the Samaritan, you have foreigners meeting each other. You have a Samaritan and a Jew who hated each other, just as you might imagine different people, groups who hate each other. Samaritan and a Jew, it says he had compassion on him. But in the second story, and Jesus tells both of these parables, in the second parable that Jesus tells, the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son, it's a father and son relationship, and it says he felt compassion. I think this captures a little bit of what I'm trying to get across here, that compassion can be both ways. It can be an action that leads to an emotion, or it can be an emotion that leads to an action. But it also proves the point that the closer you are to something, the more connected you are, like a father and son relationship, those feelings are going to be super strong. The difference between a foreigner, you see a foreigner, you can still have compassion, but it, it's maybe more of an action to begin with. I was listening to uh, Dr. Michael Brown, uh, who is ethnically Jewish, I think a former practicing Jew, but has now uh, been a believer for many years. And he was talking about the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict and the recent terror attack that happened there. It was basically like their 9-11. If you don't realize the, the, the gravity of it, the weight of it, it's kind of like the Israel, Israeli 9-11 that they experienced. And he was saying, as, as a Christian, as a Jew, he was saying, hey, look, my heart goes out to Palestinian the Palestinian people, like I think there's women and children who are going to be harmed because of the ongoing conflict now and because of the reaction. And he's saying, you know, he, his view is, hey, Israel has a right to respond. Uh, and my heart goes out to the innocent people who are being used 
by an evil government that they have. I can have compassion on them, but he said, if I'm honest, my heart is with my people. Like I, I, he, he's a Jew, and he, he's like, these is my people being tortured and burned alive and harmed in, in horrific ways. And we, as God's people, we have to see this is how compassion works, which is the beauty of understanding what it means to be a Christian, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, getting that true Christian identity deeper and deeper into our hearts so that that compassion is strongest here. Now, you can't, you can't, you can't erase, and you should, we, we should never, even though we, we might ration our compassion actions at times because people, sometimes compassion can hurt, even, even though we might, might do that, uh, we, we, we can never restrict the compassion we feel on the inside. We, we've got to feel all those things, but we've got to allow God to move, move our hearts for each other when we're in pain, when we're facing hardship and difficulty. and This is God's church. This is his family. You know, in, in Chicago, sometimes I can grow a bit callous towards some of the social needs here. And you see the homeless situation. You see other things. It, it can be easy to be, to be callous at times. I'm just confessing my, my weaknesses here with this, that um, our family, you know, will try to, you know, people are, asking for money or whatever, rarely ever, I think maybe once, maybe we gave somebody money, just pray, say, God, please let them not use it for drugs or alcohol. Um, but, you know, we often offer food that we have or to buy food for people, and it's hard because people reject it. They don't want it. They don't want, you know, that's my, you know, 99% of the time, they don't want the food you offer them. And, and you know, they want the money for, for other things uh, which are not good for them. And so it can, be, it can be easy to sometimes, for me, this is on me, to be a bit callous towards that. And one time I took a guy to a pizzeria and he took me up on my offer to get him food, and but then he's like, you know, as I'm ordering him food, he's adding to the order, you know? And I'm like, yes, I want a drink. He's like, wants a coffee. I'm like, get the guy a small coffee. He's like, make it a large, you know? I'm like, you know, it's humorous to think about in hindsight, but, you know, my heart was struggling. I, I, in that moment, I felt a lot of resentment. And, but there was another situation in Starbucks. Bought the guy a coffee and a snack, and again, just feeling like, you know, why is this the case? Why is this person here? What's going on? How can we truly help them? And it wasn't until I asked him about his life and learned about his history and what he cared about and who he was that I stopped seeing a homeless man and started seeing a man and actually, had, actually then had those feelings of compassion. Like this is a person who's in need. We, we have a problem in American society it's a big problem. It's a really big problem for Christians to actually uh, figure out that cities tend to expose poverty and put it right on display. You, you can't hide it. You see it everywhere. everywhere. It, it's magnified. And different. And we, there are ways that you can work to minimize that, and sometimes bad policy makes it worse and all those kind of things. But cities, you know, they, they really are still, in what the Old Testament talks about, the purpose of a city, in terms of being a place of refuge, they really still are a place of refuge for the poor and the needy. Um, because even, even in suburban environments, this is, this is the, 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 the contrast here. Cities tend to expose and, and put it on display. Suburbs tend to hide it. So if you, if you live in an environment where the only way you can get there is to drive, you have to, to, to be you know, 
productive enough in your life to have enough money to own a car and to better drive one. And, uh, you know, you have to have a decent house. You have to keep your lawn looking pretty good. And uh, if, if, if that's the kind of environment, it's always going to exclude the poor and the needy. They cannot exist there. And even if they do manage to get out there, the police always bring them back. And, and so that's, that's why the cities tend to be places where, where poverty is on, on display. And the, the biblical principle we've been looking at here is that if you, hide, if, if, if you hide your vision from the poor and from the needy, your heart grows dim with compassion because you don't see it. Even our neighbors, you see, the further we are away from our neighbors, you can't see your neighbor's strife. You can't see the pain they're under, the difficulty. And that's, again, one of the beauties of you know, being in a city is you've got people right here and right here and down there and up there. And you've got people all around. And sometimes that's a headache and sometimes that's frustrating. But there is, there's an urban sentiment or mentality that all Christians, no matter where they live, need to hold on to, where we say we value proximity to suffering because it's the key, it's the mechanism that God uses to grow a heart of compassion for people. We can never close off our hearts to the needy. Now, I understand we're in an anxious culture. I understand we're, we're doom scrolling on social media. We're getting all the headlines. We're overwhelmed. We're, we can barely cope with even just little things in our lives because the whole world seems like it's on fire. I, I understand you say, What's, how can you be engaged? How can you care? How can you keep, how can you maintain that soft heart in the midst of all this, well, the answer comes from Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Fred Rogers has the hack for us here. He says, when I was a boy, I would see scary things in the news. My mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. You look for the compassion. In any tragedy, you say, where is the heart of God coming through the people who are responding? And if you don't see it, then you put it on and you become it. You say, how do, I, how do I shine this love and this compassion in this moment? The Bible promises us as we care for those in need, as we help those in need, we ourselves, our needs will be taken care of. That's the promise of Scripture we can hold on to. But also we're warned in Scripture that if we won't look upon the poor and the needy, there's actually great, great warnings, cautions for us. Proverbs 28, 27 says, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he, look at that, he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. It's so easy in our context, in, 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 this, in our day and age, we live in, in the wealthiest society that's ever existed on the, in the history of man that we know about, unless there are ancient civilizations that were destroyed that we, we've lost touch with. Who knows? That's a fun conspiracy to think about. We live in the wealthiest time ever. And for Christians, though, it can be so easy to get embroiled and caught up with the goals of our culture. Things like, hey, you, you, know, you got to get the right degree or that second degree. you got to go to the right schools and land that sweet job and live in an important place and you got to get a spouse and a house and a dog and a, that right kind of vehicle and then a second vehicle and a bigger house and another dog and a certain size family and a certain amount of flat screen TVs and you know, go on fancy vacations to places. And in and of themselves, these things are not bad. They're not bad in and of themselves. But you see, the problem with consumerism, the problem with the goals of the culture is, is that 
You know, a fish doesn't know that it's swimming in water. Christians sometimes don't understand the culture they're swimming in. And that consumerism, that desire for more, that desire for wanting, that desire for a picturesque, this little life that we, we the goals of the culture that we paint for ourselves, the problem is it chokes out compassion. It chokes out that, that heart that says, how do I really see the need and what's going on around me? And how do I meet that need and love that person and help that person? To choose the principles of compassion in Scripture is to put ourselves in the pathway of those who are suffering so that we can see it, so that we can be as close to it. Proximity to pain equals compassion. If you find yourself lacking compassion, you say, I've got to go and look. I've got to open my eyes. I've got to look because God has, my heart's grown dim. My heart's grown hard. My heart's grown callous in some way. And what happened with our friend Nathaniel? Lopez received this phone call. And thank God it wasn't an emergency. On the contrary, it was a breakthrough. Nathaniel had started doing what they had tried to help him to do. He was showing up, he showed up at this community center and was performing. He was doing this kind of performance, musical performance, for a, a group of people he'd gathered together who were interested in listening to him play. And as their relationship evolved, Nathaniel began to open up more and more. And Steve Lopez had brought him back to his home to meet his wife and his daughter. And after a year of really working with him, really trying to convince him, they were able to get him off the streets and to get him his own place. And it was, it was really hard work. Nathaniel was very resistant. The Skid Row was his home. The streets were his home. That's where he felt in control. That's where he, he knew all the different places to go. He knew the different things to do. But they knew he, he would be better off having his own place. And they were able to eventually convince him to help him see that this new living situation he had, this was his home. And he should see it as his home. And he should try and take care of it as his home. And after a lot of battling, they got him in there. And then after that, Lopez took him to rehearse uh, to the, uh, the uh, rehearsals at the, at the local orchestra so that he could listen and experience the music there. And then the musicians there got a heart for Nathaniel as well. So they started practicing with him, helping him improve his talent. And, and then it went all the way to him finally performing with the Los Angeles uh, Philanthropic. And it took, took a whole decade, even beyond that point, from meeting him on Skid Row to finally Nathaniel performed at the White House to the president. And it's a wonderful story. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moving story. But in the midst of it, dealing with his mental illness is no, was no easy thing and is still not a straight path. Because of the shock therapy and the forced medication that his family tried, Nathaniel is scarred from this, and he refuses all medical intervention and all help that he could be given. There, there are better solutions now than there were back then, but he refuses it all. And it's gone to court several times, and the court always rules in his favor. He refuses it, even though it could help him. Lopez says there are days where Nathaniel is very pleasant, easy to get along with. If not, he's disjointed, mentally confusing at times, but just pleasant to be around. And then there are you see in the next day, his eyes are red, bloodshot. 
And he's aggressive and rageful at times. At times he will turn against the very people who are trying to help him the most because of his state of mind. He just doesn't understand. He's, he's barely hanging on to a thread of reality. And the thing that grounds him most is music, is playing music, performing music, being with other musicians, listening to these rehearsals. That's what grounds him, and that's the gift that Lopez gave him, was the thing that grounded him. On, his, on a good day, Nathaniel uh, said this. He said, it's very good to be alive and to be in the company of Mr. Lopez. And then Lopez says this as well. He says, it's the most so Steve, this is the journal, journalist. He says, it's the most meaningful friendship that I've had in my life. It's the one I've learned the most from. Their bond and the compassion that was shown, it's a testament to us. It's a reminder to us of how, of the importance of showing compassion, of how compassion can bring two worlds together. Two completely different people from completely different backgrounds with you know, one person's life is going pretty great, one person's life is not going well. But the choice to show humanity to somebody, to open up, to care about somebody else, resulted in something remarkable happening. Now, with such an epic story, it can be easy to disregard it as an outlier and say, well, it's an extreme example, and that's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to meet a genius Mozart musician on the street and bring them through I want to challenge us to not do that with this story. How do you know? How, how do you know the potential inside of somebody? How do you know the person, what, what, what can be brought out of somebody in dire circumstances, what they can become with a little bit of help? Let's not assume. Jesus, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, right? We tend, to think, we tend to take that as, oh, if I see somebody doing something wrong or it looks like they're doing something wrong, or somebody who looks homeless or something, like, oh, yeah, not to judge them by their appearances. But, you know, it goes the other way, too. Just because the person next to you today might look like they have it together, Jesus says don't judge by appearances. The person next to you today, or any Sunday you come, might be hanging onto reality by a thread. They really might be. They could be on the edge, and you'd have no idea because they look like they got it together. Our job as a church, as a church family, is to discover what's the thing that can ground that person. What is it? Obviously, the greatest gift is, is the grace of Jesus and a relationship with Jesus. Of course, we're leading people towards Jesus. But what is, the, with Nathaniel, it was music. But what else is it? In the church, there's no other institution that does this. In the church, the church brings rich and poor side by side, sit, sit next together on the same pew. There's nothing else in culture that does this, that brings people as equals, young and old, brings us together. People of all ethnic backgrounds, all skin colors, truly becoming a family, truly together. The church is our world's only hope to actually continue to have and to continue to grow a compassionate culture. I think America is a very compassionate country in many regards. We're always sending out humanitarian aid to places. A lot of countries don't do stuff like that. So there is that Christian heritage, but the only way to maintain it, the only way to keep it pure, the only way to use it properly is the, the presence of the church. It's, it's you and I learning to love each other more deeply than we've ever loved each other before. 
You know, we, we're big on the grace of Jesus. We're big on unconditional grace and the idea of the gospel of I receive forgiveness for my sins, not because of my work, but because of Christ's work, not because of my sacrifices, but because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We're big on that. But don't you think, when I, when I was thinking about compassion and comparing compassion to grace, I was like, you know, compassion actually seems a little un, more understandable to me. Maybe it does to you as well. It seems, because grace seems so irrational sometimes. Like to love somebody, to forgive somebody who doesn't want it, doesn't deserve it, doesn't show any signs of remorse or change. Just great, like sheer grace. I mean, only God can really show true grace. It's, it's totally irrational, but, but you see, see compassion, it, make, it makes a little bit more sense to me. It feels a little bit more understandable that like, if I see that somebody's in pain and they want help, uh, it feels quite natural to, 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 to meet that need. Of course, my heart could be hard. I may not do it. But let me tell you this. If, you're, if you struggle to find and understand grace, work on compassion. Work on seeing the pain of others because you know what? It's a step towards grace. It's a step towards unconditional love. It's a step towards radical, outrageous, excessive love. It's that compassion. God sees your value, and he sees the gifts he's put in you. You know, everyone's a secret genius at something, and he wants to pull that out of you. He wants to pull it out of you. Not because, oh, then we can commodify that, but because... There's a light that God's put in you. He wants, you. he wants it to shine because you have value. God wants to pull us out of our confusion, out of our isolation, out of our poverty, whether it's physical or spiritual, pull us out of that to transform us, to be a light for him, to be a blessing to others. And it's only through the cross. It's only through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's only through the grace that he gives us. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to turn to him, sing to him. Allow God to stretch your compassion. Allow God to help you see just like you would see a family member or your own kind, your own people, your own kin, to see people in that same light. Whether it's an action that leads to a feeling or a feeling that leads to an action to say, God, give me wise compassion that I might truly shine your light to people.